More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to today's edition of the Rush Limbaugh Show podcast. I feel like I've been here before. I feel like I've been here. I feel like I've done that. I, I, I feel like this deja vu. I feel like this thing has happened before and we've commented on it before. And I'll be darned if I can find anything different to say about it from previous years. I'm kind of hamstrung here, but... That's why I'm here, folks, to give you a perspective that you haven't heard anywhere else. Live from the Southern Command in sunny South Florida, it's Open Line Friday! And I have to tell you, the easiest thing in the world would be to say, holy cow, did Biden knock it out of the park? Well, that's what even commentators on our side are saying, Mr. Snurdly. It's a boy, did Biden knock it out of the... Holy cow. And why do people think that? It's partially our fault. We lowered the bar. We've been talking about the fact that he's got uh, early onset, late onset senility, Alzheimer's, what have you. And so he does a speech for about, what was it, 15 minutes? How, how long? 22-minute speech. And there was only one flub, and you you would have to have that flub pointed out to you. It was not glaring. It was uh, toward the end of the speech. But because he, he didn't goof up, goof up a word and because he didn't lose his train of thought because he's reading a teleprompter, uh, it's very easy to say, oh, my, he nailed it. Oh, my, oh, my, he's back. Oh, God, right. And this is what the commentariat has um has been devoted to saying. And I, I I imagine that there are a lot of you who are thinking, hey, yeah, we were expecting Biden to be not what we saw last night. I bet there's some of you who are scared now because Biden did better than you thought, better than the conventional wisdom had led uh, you to believe. I bet you, Mr. Snurdly, that there are even some people who are now wondering if Biden's senility has been an act from the get-go that he has been really good at pulling off 
that he's not senile, that he doesn't have early onset Alzheimer's, that there's nothing wrong with his brain other than that he's a leftist, and that he's going to be able to do his debates just fine. He's going to be able to answer questions just fine. All these appearances where he's appeared to lose his uh, train of thought, where he uh, – the debates where he uh, – Forgot what he was going to say, so he said he was out of time. And people thinking it was all an act. Well, a gigantic. Well, I'm not. I'm just telling you that I bet there's some people who think that now, given what people think of the of the Democrat Party and their and their capabilities. Um. So we'll get to the observations of all this. What what last night? Whatever you think of last night, can't erase, folks. This is one of the darkest, most apocalyptic weeks in the life of a political party I can recall. And that's saying something because the Democrat Party has been devoted to the apocalyptic future of this country for quite a while. That has been their strong suit. That has been the way they have attempted to reach out to people and essentially to scare them uh, into thinking that, America's best days are behind us, and your future is not up to you. It used to be, but things are so bad now, you need to just turn your life over to us. And that's your best odds of having an enjoyable life and so forth. The, but, but this week has taken the cake for pessimism, for darkness, for anger and, and rage and it's been it's been breathtaking to behold it throughout this entire week there hasn't been one reference and there wasn't last night to the violence and the civic unrest that's happening in democrat cities there hasn't been any condemnation of it there hasn't there hasn't even been any supportive mention of it black lives matter and by the way did you notice last night all the flags i mean if you watch this they had uh, I guess Plug showed up at some, uh, I don't know, it it looked like a gigantic uh, cafeteria or something where he was inside. And the parking lot, they converted it into like a drive-in theater. And they had giant screens out there, and people drove up in their cars and watched Plug's speech in the cars. And there were flags festooned all over the sides of the buildings. Gigantic American flags. People were waving the flags, and they were and they were celebrating the flag, and they and they were the flags were just everywhere. Now that's not going to go over well with Black Lives Matter. The Democrat Party right now is devoted to people who want to kneel on the flag, who are promising to disrespect the flag. You know, the NFL season is going to start in September, and the expectation is established. That players and coaches, the first thing they will do when the national anthem is played is take a knee. This is expected. The flag will be disrespected. Also, the NFL has announced they're not going to have live anthem singers prior to games. And I think that's part of a long-term project to get rid of the anthem period. And you know why? And it's it's because of the surveys that we've cited over the years that the sight of patriotic symbols like the flag 
tends to ratchet up people's sense of patriotism, their love of America. And it tends to send them into voting booths to vote Republican. That's, that's from Harvard University, folks. I'm not making this up. And you probably remember me talking about it. Well, that irritates Democrats out the wazoo. And so the NFL getting rid of all these symbols makes perfect sense. I've long thought that the left wants to get rid of symbols like the flag on the premise that they're unnecessary and it's um, it's divisive, divisive. It's uh, it's 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 biased. It's it's not unifying. The flag is not unifying. Like make America great is not unifying, and we we shouldn't be corrupting sports with the flag. And so there it was on full display last night. Now I haven't seen any negative reaction to it from Black Lives Matter or Antifa, but I'm telling you, I'm here to tell you. There are some people that watched that speech last night that the word had better gone out to ignore it. That it was a speech given for a specific purpose, but don't think it means anything. I did two things. I listened to it and I watched it. If you listened to it, it sounded pretty good. If you watched it, it was clear that Biden looked scared. He looked uncomfortable. He looked stiff. He looked nervous. Belying somebody with his many years of experience. The speech was, well, it, it, it was a list. It was a list of every political bromide and cliche ever written, such as, Light is more powerful than dark. Love is more powerful than hate. Green energy is more powerful than fossil fuels. What, Whatever. It was just one little slogan after another. But you know what that was, ladies and gentlemen? There are a lot of people in... Well... We are told there are a lot of people that Donald Trump has worn out. Donald Trump is made nervous. They don't like the fact that Donald Trump is an outsider. They don't like the fact that Donald Trump has come to Washington, turned the place upside down. What we got from Joe Biden last night was 100% pure inside the Beltway politics. What we got last night was what people expect of politicians, a bunch of meaningless, banal, open-ended bromides and cliches that don't commit the politician to anything. They just establish him as a good guy with character and good manners. But they don't really get into any kinds of specific, they just make people feel comfortable. It was 100% inside the Beltway politics. It was written by people who live there, written by people who've worked there. It was written for a guy who has served there for 47 some odd years. And for people who are now tired of an outsider 
who doesn't use cliches like that, doesn't use bromides, doesn't get into meaningless pap. I mean, Donald Trump would never say, light is more powerful than dark. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. It's shocking to everybody, I know. Nobody's ever seen anything like it, but light is more powerful than it. He would never say anything like this. Donald Trump would never think that is how you uplift people, but this is how, inside the Beltway, professional deep staters and politicians who exist to mislead people, who exist to lie to people, This is exactly how they do it. And some people might find what Biden did last night comforting. If they're tight. I'm not talking about Trump supporters. No, 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 no. I'm simply talking about people who want to return to what they think political normalcy is, being lied to, having a bunch of meaningless pap thrown at them. But it made them feel good. Yes, the emotion, Mr. Limbaugh, that's exactly right. It was very welcoming. It was very comfortable. And uh, it would remind people what Trump isn't. And in that sense, depending on how many of those people are who saw it, it 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 may have connected. We can't deny that based on expectations, plugs did well. And we're the ones that lowered the expectations. We're the ones who have been telling everybody that Biden can't do what he did last night. Well, not last night, because I frankly expected last night to happen. I don't think I said so on the air, but I to, to a lot of people, I expected last night to happen. He's going to read a teleprompter. At least he can do that, 22 minutes. That's one of the shortest nomination acceptance speeches on the record. I predicted that media on our side would be fawning all over it because of these Lowered expectations. Here's a tweet. Van Jones. We were prepared for it to be a terrible speech. As long as he didn't embarrass himself, we were going to come out here and praise it. This what the liberal media be doing tonight, tomorrow, in the foreseeable future. He didn't embarrass himself. They had the low standard, too. They had the bar way, way low. But once again, Biden did... What Kamala Harris did when she spoke earlier in the week, he lied through his teeth about what happened and what Trump said in Charlottesville, Virginia, just like she lied about the virus and what Trump did or didn't do and how he has reacted to it. She lied through her teeth about how Trump has destroyed the economy. And these things never get corrected. But this is a big one. This and, and Biden knows he was lying through his teeth about the Charlottesville story. It's a three-year-old story, and it is a perfect left-wing liberal lie. It has been corrected every time it's been told. And yet, the lie stands on its own. So I'm going to I'm going to fix it again. I'm going to explain it again. But I want to get a couple of sound bites and I want to I want to remind you show you illustrate the difference to what I was just talking about the comforting inside the beltway banal bromides and clichés 
versus somebody who literally intends to shake things up. Let's go back to Trump's inaugural address. We have two sound bites. January 20th, 2017. Here's the first one. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. Washington flourished, but the people did not share in its wealth. Politicians prospered, but the jobs left and the factories closed. And I'm watching this, and you've got ex-presidents there, like George W. Bush was there, and he was looking around like he was listening to a foreign language. And when it was over, and everybody was leaving, somebody in the press caught up with George W. Bush. And what do you think of that, Mr. President? He said, that was some weird crap right there. That was some, except he didn't say crap. That was some weird crap right there, man, let me tell you. It shook them up. It reverberated from their insides. Here's another example. The establishment protected itself, but not the citizens of our country. Their victories have not been your victories. Their triumphs have not been your triumphs. And while they celebrated in our nation's capital, there was little to celebrate for struggling families all across our land. So now let's just pick a random passage from from Biden's speech last night. Compare number three, three, two, one. Hit it here. And now I give you my word. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. Big whoop, big whoop. It's time for us, for we the people to come together and make no mistake. United, we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. This season of darkness has been brought to us by you, Mr. Biden, and your party. And this week, you have perfected the descent uh, into apocalyptic darkness. But you see the vacancy, the banality, the, the emptiness, the no specificity, specificity in this. Uh, anyway, I got to take a break. Up against it always on time. Back in a moment. Hi, greetings. Welcome back. Rush Limbaugh, the Excellence in Broadcasting Network. Open line Friday. Whatever you want to talk about is fair game, ladies and gentlemen. Could be questions, could be comments. Doesn't have to be the debate. Doesn't I mean, the uh, speech last night doesn't have to be the convention. Could be anything you want it to be. Uh, I had this yesterday, and I almost got to it, but I got interrupted in addition to the fact that at the NFL games there will be no live anthem singers, and I don't know if that's going to be at the start of the season or instituted later on. I can't remember. But I do know they're going to de-emphasize it. They're going to de-emphasize live military pregame shows celebrating and playing the anthem. And believe me, this is exactly what the left's objective has been with this from the get-go. They do not want to have to go up against the flag in the battle for the minds and hearts of the American people. And every public event is seen as a battle for the hearts and minds of the American people. Well, look at this. No sideline reporters and no pregame TV reporters this season in 2020. You know what that means. That means no female 
NFL reporter jobs, at least on the field, no sideline reporters. Not going to happen. Not going to permit it. Now, I find this fascinating because there's a part of me that believes the NFL never wanted sideline reporters, that it was just something that happened as a result of inertia, societal evolvement, their evolution and so forth. And this is one of the things I wonder when we get back to normal if this will come back. Open line Friday. Mike, uh, standby audio sound bites. One, two, and three. I'm getting a lot of feedback. That was great, Rush. That comparison, Trump's inaugural to Biden last night. It is a good comparison because it, you know, I think people forget four years ago is a long time. And Trump has been around every day for four years. It's easier to remember Trump of yesterday or this morning than it is the Trump of four years ago. The Trump of four years ago was magic. The Trump campaign four years ago, his inaugural address, that whole period, it was magical. And I don't blame them for trying to recapture it. I wish they could. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to recapture it. You know, after Trump, uh, in fact, give you a, give you an illustration. Sometime earlier this week, Trump appeared at an airport hangar. It was, I think it was in Minnesota. Oh, and speaking of which, Trump and Biden are tied in Minnesota. Have you heard about this? Where did I put it? It's in one of these two stacks up here, ladies and Trump. And and Trump's, uh, here it is. And Trump's daily tracking presidential approval number, second day in a row, 51% in Rasmussen. Trump and Biden are tied in Minnesota. Minnesota! George Floyd, Minnesota. This is big. So anyway, Trump was in Minnesota. Well, he was in Minnetonka. And he had the airplane as the backdrop, and he was doing a rally in a hangar. It was just like some of the rallies in 2016, except the plane was was his uh, 757. The golden black plane with a gigantic Trump in red on the fuselage. And he did a rally, I think it was the one in Minnetonka, and it was awesome. It was it, it was exactly like the rallies of 2016 in terms of his energy and his focus and, and the subject matter uh, and his energy. And, they, and it, it was during The Five on Fox, and I happened to be watching. And when it was over, they went to... The Five, for post-rally commentary. And Juan Williams came through. He said, well, you know, it was boring as hell to me. We saw that four years ago. We don't need to be seeing this again. Come on, Mr. Pre, come up with something new. You can't go back to the well like this. That was nothing new. That was predictable. That was absolutely, I mean... The president's got to get into the, in the present. He can't go back to the past and relive. And yeah, the hell he can't. That's why it was great. It's exactly the kind of magic Trump needs to recapture. And I think he's doing it right now. Trump is addressing some group. I don't know who it is. 
He's in Arlington, Virginia, and I saw a little bit of it before the program started. And he's got the attitude that he had earlier this week, standing in front of this was Air Force One, not the Trump plane. This was actually a seven. It was a U.S. government seven fifty seven. Oh, another. What? How come Russia didn't take the seven forty seven? Well, because he had a lot of puddle jump stops. He was uh, uh, in in Minnesota. He had you know a couple of hundred mile flights. You don't want to put a landing and takeoff cycle on a Boeing seven forty seven on a hundred miles. I mean that the, a cycle adds much to maintenance costs, overhaul costs. So they took the seven fifty seven, and it was the one served as the uh, the backdrop. But I'm telling you, it was it was fabulous. It was like Trump rallies of 2016 in the hangars back then. And he's, he's, he's captured it in what is going on right now. I don't know the group to whom he's speaking. I never saw the graphics are not saying. But he's doing well. He's on. And the Democrats, I think, are living in mortal fear that Trump's going to recapture 2016. And I guess what Juan Williams, oh, this is old Ah, oh, we've been there, done oh, Let me tell you what was old. Let me tell you what was been there, done that. Last night. The only reason last night is being held up as some kind of greatness is because Joe Biden didn't screw up. Is because Joe Biden was able to read the prompter, not lose his place, not lose his timing. But in terms of substance... That speech could have been given 50 years ago, could have been given 30 years ago, could have been given 20 years ago, could have been given a year ago, five years ago. There was nothing in that speech that in any way dated it to the present, other than the occasional mentions of Trump. And yet, there's nobody talking about it that way. And if you dare talk about it that way, they're going to be climbing down your chili. You can't be mean to Biden. See, Biden is a sympathetic figure. We are supposed to feel sorry for Biden. Do you know why? Because his wife died in a car accident. And then his beloved son, Bo Biden, died from brain cancer. We're supposed to feel sorry. But we can't feel sorry for President Trump, whose brother just died. His brother, Robert who happened to be his best friend. No, 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 no. We can't feel sorry for Trump. Trump deserves to be miserable. As much pain and suffering as he's causing people, Trump deserves it. Well, no, we're supposed to feel sorry for plugs. We're supposed to feel sorry for plugs because he's losing his mental acuity. He lost his wife years ago, and he lost his son, Bo Biden. We're supposed to feel sorry for him because he really can't do what he did last night. But I'm just, I'm here to tell you. So, so Trump manages to replicate the energy, the subject matter, and the excitement, the infectiousness of a 2016 rally. And what do the Democrats say in the media? Yeah, it's old hat. And nothing new there. This is proof the president's run out of excitement to Proof the president's run out of material. Proof the president doesn't know what he's doing. Proof the president got nothing new to say. No. 
Biden proved all of that last night. Biden is who proved he's got nothing new to say. Biden is the guy recycled a 44 or 47 year Washington career last night in 22 minutes. But we're not supposed to say that. No, 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 no. Because that's mean. Well, I'll tell you, there was nothing about that speech that was innovative. There was nothing new. There was nothing in it but a bunch of cliches, overworked, a bunch of bromides, light is more powerful than dark. Oh, my God, my friends, you don't know how I was uplifted when I heard that. When I heard plugs say, light is more powerful than dark, I literally jumped out of my chair, started dancing around the room. Then I felt rejuvenated. I had never thought of that before. Well, that's the reaction some of these yokels are having. I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you, Trump was magical with that rally earlier this week. He's doing a great job with what he's doing now. We'll have sound bites of this. It was the Biden speech that was classic, predictable, inside the Beltway greatest hits. And this is why people reacted so well to my playing the two sound bites of Trump's inaugural address compared to Biden's speech last week. We'll do it again. I want to get started on the phones, however. This is Michael in uh, Sheraw, South Carolina. I'm glad you waited, sir. You're up first today. Hi. Hey, how are you, Raj? Uh, Greenville, South Carolina in the 80s. Been listening to you ever since. Watch thank thank you, sir. Magnificent. Um, very simply, the gift that the Democrats gave us last night, to listen to Biden with that wonderful speech that they spent four days rehearsing him with uh, no telling how many experts, gives the Democrats, Absolutely no excuse for not having the three spontaneous question, um, uh, the 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 three um, debates. The, 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 sorry, You're thinking I'm debates. I, that, that, the three debates. Yeah, the, in, the three debates that, that have been set up that everybody's been wondering whether we're going to have them now. Now the Democrats don't have an excuse to not have them now. And they will be spontaneous. They, they will be the kind of the, the questions that put him in a spot where uh, he's made his game. You want to bet? I'm sorry. You want to bet that they are, 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 are now going to be forced to put him out there in debates? Well, I mean, you said it yourself. I mean, uh, it was a great speech. I mean, what the, what's the excuse going to no, be? No, it Bye. wasn't. It wasn't a great speech. It was a it was it, it was a classic. Anybody in Washington who's been in that town thirty years or more could have given that speech and had it be relevant to them. That was how empty it was. In terms of substance, it was filled with one Washington inside the Beltway cliche after another, related to nothing. Plugs didn't even give lip service to the radical left movement of the Democrat Party. That speech was the safest speech. It was designed to get the reaction that it got. Even from Fox News conservative, well, Fox News commentators. Now, here's the thing about this. Biden himself may now be chomping at the bit. He may be telling his handlers, let me out there. See, I told you I could do it. 
Bring those debates on. Bring the media on. Let me do a presser. Let me at him. I can do it. His handlers know he can't. His handlers know that he cannot do the debates. That that speech last night does not prove he can do debates. Maybe they prove it, or the speech proves it to him. But his handlers know better. That was fully scripted. That thing was rehearsed. I can't tell you the amount of rehearsal time that went into that speech. From where the hands were so they wouldn't be distracting to the angle of the camera to make him look less deer in the headlight eyes. There was a lot of work that went into that. That can never be part of a live event. There can never, ever be the kind of rehearsal, production value, scripting, use of teleprompter. There can't be any of that in any live event, including a debate. But you do have a point about one thing. It's going to convince everybody else he can do it. Because the, we, it actually may be to our benefit. We lowered the bar so much. That he came through with shining colors. And now a lot of people may be thinking, hey, bring the debates on. Plugs can do it. His handlers know he can't. And they are still going to have to try and renege. And it's going to be fascinating to see how they try. Because don't doubt me, they will. Because, my friends, it's only going to take one one episode of mental acuity, one one repeat of a debate. I I I, 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 I my time's up. When he forgets his train of thought, I I don't have any more to say. That, that that that's my answer. When he forgets his train of thought, it's only going to take one of those. It, it doesn't need for all ninety minutes of a debate to be a disaster. Just is going to take one episode. i got to take a break here. I'm glad for your call. I'll be back in just a moment. Trump is speaking at the Council on National Policy, Council for National. This is the conservative version of the Council on Foreign Relations that the Rockefellers and uh, Kennedys and Zabrinskys will ever set up. I once uh, emceed a Council on National Policy event and nearly got the hook because I had not been properly uh, informed as to who the entire membership was. And I told a true but funny Ted Kennedy story, and it bombed. And I could not believe it bombed until I found out who half the audience was. And I uh, had to go up there and I had to do a mea culpa. I had to apologize. I thought... I thought it was going to be a home run. I thought these people are going to love it. And uh, it didn't go over. But I recovered. I recovered from it. I used to I used to put this story in the opening of every Rush to Excellence tour. It's hilarious. Anyway, let me get back to the phones. Joseph in Texas, you're next on the EIB Network. Hello. Hello, Rush. Best wishes and prayers. I wanted to refer to uh, the response from social media on um, 
big, big uh, liberal newspapers. One says, you can see 30 minutes of no end of him speaking. He did great. Why would they want to hide him if he can make speeches like this? A lesser amount said, well, at least we know he can still read a teleprompter. And one said, OMG, yes, I hope I wasn't the only one that noticed. Literally, the liberal Democrats watching his speech thought it was off the cuff. You're, 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 no, no. You, you're telling me that you think of a percentage, of a majority of the people on social media watch the speech thought that Plugs was ad-libbing that? Yes, sir. A major, major um, social media site. The comments are just saying he did great. He he spoke for thirty minutes. Well, go ahead and mention it. What's what's the major, major social media site? Uh, Los Angeles Times, eight, uh, August twenty first today. I was also on Huff Post. I was trying to pull some. Uh, Pull some quotes, but I got on too quickly, which was great. Well, the L.A. Times is not a social media site. I thought you meant Twitter or uh, Facebook or or something like that. You're just talking about comments to newspaper stories on this stuff. Uh, uh, if 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 the leftists think that plugs is now rare and ready to go because they don't believe that that speech was on a prompter, if they don't believe he was reading a prompt, but I don't know how you can extrapolate. Well, you're you're. You can't – there aren't enough comments on there to make a, a judgment on you're, – you're just running into a couple or three people or maybe even ten, I don't care, uh, who think that uh, he's, he's not uh, reading a prompter. That's, that's not enough evidence to suggest that a majority of Democrat viewers last night thought that. The fact that some do is just wishful thinking on, uh, on their part. Joseph, thanks much. We'll be back right after this. All right, we're going to set straight the lie the Democrats keep telling about the president at Charlottesville, Virginia. We got some sound bites of the president's uh, speech at the Council for National Policy. And uh, lots of other things in store for you on Open Line Friday as the program unfolds before your very eyes and ears. Be patient. We will be back right here before you know it. Hi, how are you? Great to have you with us on the EIB Network. It's Rush Limbaugh, and we are wrapping up yet another week of broadcast excellence right here on the uh, in the EIB Southern Command. Let's go. Let's keep it rolling. Live from the Southern Command in sunny South Florida, it's Open Line Friday. And the phone number, if you want to be on the program, 800-282-2882. The email address, lrushbo at eibnet.us. So you you guys don't know if the Biden speech was pre-recorded or not. Well, I didn't. I, I... I didn't even think about it, except I got an email here from somebody demanding to know, whatever, it's just, I hate distractions and I'm just trying to get rid of a distraction here, but if you, I had not heard that it was pre-recorded, and somebody sends me a note demanding for proof that it was pre-recorded, because if it, some if it wasn't, then Biden could have given the speech outside, 
Uh, and the people in the cars could have heard it live. But this is the first I've heard that it was pre-recorded, which would explain if it was pre-recorded. Uh, that would be interesting to know because that means they could have done 15,000 takes to get it right. But I'm not aware that it was pre-recorded, and I'm not aware that they said that it was. At any rate, um, two things, three things we're going to do here before we get back to the phones. One thing Biden did, whether it was live or on tape, one thing Biden did last night was repeat this humongous lie that Trump said that the Aryan nation's white supremacist neo-Nazis at the Charlottesville, Virginia rally three years ago were very fine people. It is a hoax. It is an element of the effort to get rid of Trump, just like Trump-Russia collusion and meddling in the election and all of that. Trump never said about that group of people what he is said to have said, the Democrats know it and the media knows it. Everybody knows that it is made up. Everybody knows that it is made up, taken out of context. Everybody reporting it knows. Biden may not know, depending on his the, the genuine state of his mental acuity. But everybody else knows, including the media. So here, grab soundbite number four. Here is uh, here, here's Biden last night during his uh, acceptance speech at the Democrat National Convention. Convention in Charlottesville. Close your eyes. Remember what you saw on television. Remember seeing those neo-Nazis and Klansmen and white supremacists coming out of fields with lighted torches, veins bulging, spewing the same, same anti-Semitic bile heard across Europe in the 30s. Remember the violent clash that ensued between those spreading hate and those with the courage to stand against it. And remember what the president said when asked? He said there were, quote, very fine people on both sides. So Biden keeps repeating this. The Democrat Party keeps repeating it. It was a lie the first time somebody, whoever it was, made it up. So let's let's review You just heard in his acceptance speech, Biden repeats the lie that Trump called a handful of so-called neo-Nazis at the 2017 Charlottesville protest over the destruction of a Robert E. Lee monument, which was what they were there to protest. The lie is that Trump called them very fine people. It's the same lie that Biden used to kick off his campaign. This is the second time he had minimum second time that he's uttered it. Biden has repeated this lie in almost every speech he has given since then. And he does it almost word for word. But as we have pointed out tiresomely, Trump actually condemned the neo-Nazis. Trump said the neo-Nazis should be condemned totally. Biden knows he's lying about this. Audio soundbite number five. We're going to go back. The bite you just heard, uh, well, it was from last night. Let's see, what was the... uh, 
So I guess it was. Let me get the the, the, the this thing happened uh, in 2017. I don't have the exact date, but here is tr- no. Yeah, I know that. I I yeah. The bite coming up is August 15th, but anyway, here's 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 what Trump said. I'm not talking about the neo Nazis and the white nationalists because they should be condemned totally. That was Trump at New York City Trump Tower speaking to reporters about the protests and violence in Charlottesville. And that's what he said. I'm not talking about this is when he was correcting everybody. I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists because they should be condemned totally. You know, he, he was making it clear that he was not calling them very fine people. President Trump repeatedly condemned the neo-Nazis in Charlottesville in August of 2017. He totally did so. Moreover, the neo-Nazis were not the only one violent group that was in Charlottesville. The clash was not with those standing against hate peacefully. The clash was with violent, black-clad Antifa extremists. As to very fine people, Trump had been referring to peaceful protests both for and against the removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee. Trump was not talking about neo-Nazis. He was not talking about skinheads or white supremacists. He was talking about the peaceful protests before all the malcontents showed up that were both for and against the removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee. He completely condemned the extremists as the timeline and the transcript confirms. Even Jake Tapper of CNN has admitted that Trump did not call neo-Nazis very fine people, yet it is the core message of the Biden campaign. It remains a lie. And Biden keeps telling it, but not just Biden. The media keeps telling it. And here, you, you have to understand, even Jake Tapper knows it's a lie. And he allows it to continue to be repeated on CNN and elsewhere in the mainstream media. Here, play soundbite number, number, uh, number five again. Here's Trump making it clear. I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists because they should be condemned totally. Right. He was never, ever talking about fine people on both sides. He was talking about people on the subject of removing the statue of Robert E. Lee. Which, by the way, how many statues of Robert E. Lee have now been torn down? All he was saying, there's some very fine people who support Robert E. Lee as an historical American figure. And there's some very fine people who maybe don't and want Robert E. Lee written out of American history. That's all Trump was saying. It had nothing to do with the skinheads and the white supremacists and whatever the hell they were there for. But the point is, everybody knows this. And I can't tell you how frustrating it is to have to correct this every damn time Joe Biden opens his mouth about it. And the reason it's frustrating is that everybody knows, everybody knows what an abject lie that uh, that this is. Okay, Trump's at the Council for National Policy. We have four sound bites. And here is the first one. This is the 
president, I guess, previewing the convention. Republican convention that's coming next week. They spent four straight days attacking America as racist and a horrible country that must be redeemed. Joe Biden grimly declared a season of American darkness. And yet, look at what we've accomplished until the plague came in. Look at what we've accomplished. And now we're doing it again. It's the most successful period of time in the history of our country. They want to punish America and its citizens instead of holding them high. Where Joe Biden sees American darkness, I see American greatness. So maybe uh, maybe a little preview here of what the convention is going to be. It's not hard to figure out what it's going to be. Some of it's going to be live. Some of it's going to be uplifting, as you can imagine. It's going to be devoted to American greatness and American exceptionalism and the people who have made it so. It's going to stand out in stark contrast to the misery and the pain and the suffering and the struggle that was portrayed throughout this past week by the Democrats. Here's, uh, here, this, is, this is Trump uh, talking about how people just need to reject what the Democrats are standing it's for. It's time to reject the anger and the hate of the Democrat Party. We have the biggest election coming up of our lifetime. No party can lead America that spends so much time tearing down America. Boy, is that not true. How can you expect them to lead when they devote themselves to tearing it down? And, I mean, literally tearing it down. They won't even stop the destruction of their own cities. Chicago, Seattle, Portland, all in an effort to bring down Donald Trump. Although in Chicago, it's kind of funny. The mayor there, Lori Lightweight, apparently her house and other houses on her block have uh, come under threat by malcontent protesters. And so the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightweight, has brought in security teams, armed security teams to patrol outside her house. And she said, well, what would you do if your house were under assault? You'd do exactly what I'm doing. I'm bringing them in. I'm protecting my property. But you're not protecting anybody else's is the point, Mayor Lightweight. You're letting the ramble rousers do whatever they do. But when it's all turned on you, what happens? Oh, it's intolerable then. And she doesn't see, she literally doesn't see the uh, hypocrisy or the unequal treatment. I mean, you know, we give these people credit for a lot more than they deserve in terms of intelligence and strategy and uh, so forth. They're just, folks, they're just not as smart as you think that they are. And they certainly, they don't have the class and they don't have the character to even understand their own hypocrisy. You know, if you're going to you know, worry about being a hypocrite, you have to have a certain degree of character. You have to have a certain awareness, self-awareness. And, and they don't. They just believe that they're special and that you ought to look at them that way too. And if their house is threatened, that you ought to support them doing what they can to protect their house because they are your leader. 
And as such, they matter more than you do. This next bite from the Council on National Policy, it's Arlington, Virginia. When I spoke to it, they uh, they met at the uh, Ritz-Carlton Pentagon. It's real close to the Pentagon. I don't know if that's where the Council for National Policy still meets. Yes, yes, that's that's where I nearly got. Well, I, the only thing I didn't get the hook because the uh, the offensive comment I made led right into a break for dinner. It was during dinner that I, you know, saw my future flash before my eyes. If I didn't fix the mistake I had made right before dinner. Yo, yeah, I remember the joke. It was not a joke. It was a true story. That's why I'll be happy to share it with you. Uh, and and the and the reason I just I I thought the room was filled with conservatives, and it was. What I didn't know that half of the room was evangelical Christian conservatives. That's what I had not been briefed on. The Council for National Policy was a new organization to me. I knew it was big, uh, and I, I was very flattered to have been asked to emcee the, uh, the night's festivities. Uh, Bill Bennett was there. Paul, what's his? I'm having a mental block on his name. One of the great, great, great conservative organizers. Uh, it, it, it'll come to me. And anyway, I'm standing up, and and I'm I'm uh, you know, Tom Clancy is there, and, and it's it's a festive night. And so, right before the uh, the break for dinner, after introducing some of the luminaries, and after a few brief speeches, I told the story of Senator Kennedy, who had been caught in a boat off the coast of the south of France by paparazzi helicopter, and the photos had appeared in uh, the New York Daily News. So it was a truce, it wasn't a joke. And I said the, uh, the first first photo showed Senator Kennedy and his very young bikini-clad woman cavorting um, the boat. It was a relatively small boat. It was a classy boat. It wasn't any bigger than 60 feet. They were cavorting around, and you could see it because the helicopter photos got pretty close. The next photo uh, showed the young woman in the water and Senator Kennedy jumping in after her, which I said, maybe a first. Senator Kennedy jumping in the water after a woman. Now, they laughed at that. And I said, the third picture that they got, well, that picture got... That picture got shown around all over Capitol Hill, folks, and they, they took it to Senator Howell Heflin of Alabama, big old, big old guy, and they showed it to Howell Heflin, and he looked at it, he said, well, I do declare, it sure looked to me like Senator Kennedy done changed his position on offshore drilling, and I expected massive laughter. I expected humongous applause. And the room was dead quiet. And I looked around and I went, what the heck happened here? What in the world went on? So I 
I cleverly ended and turned everybody back to their tables for dinner, went back and sat down. And then I, I, I had it explained to me what had, uh, what, what had gone wrong. Yeah, I really thought that was going to be a home run. It was, it was Paul Weirich who was the, uh, the chairman of council on, uh, on, on uh, uh, national policy that had invited me. And he was, he was one heck of a conservative uh, mover, shaker, and organizer. And I remember I, I, I went up after dinner and I apologized and I explained how I had screwed up that I did not know the makeup of over half the audience and I, I asked for forgiveness and I assured them that it would never happen again and so forth. And when the evening is over... We're walking out, leaving the ballroom, and it's crowded, and I see Dr. James Dodson, which tells me even more about the makeup of half the room. And he's got somebody with him. I said, that, that can't be. That just can't be. I've just been reamed out here for it. So I went up and introduced myself. Hi, Dr. Dodson. Rush, he says, I know who you are. I know. Uh, that woman you just talking that looked like Donna Rice. It was. You have a problem with? It? I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm. She had the affair with Gary Hartpants. I said, she has found the Lord, young man. Something you might want to look into rather soon. Oh, geez, I, I thought, how did I have I stepped into it here? So I went and found Weirich, and I said, Dodson is really still ticked. No, 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 they're having fun with you. But you have to understand that you've got to be very careful about it. But I said it had all the ingredients. It had Ted Kennedy. It had adultery. It had Howell Heffern with a great line. But those things are not funny to a lot of people. You need to understand. It's okay, okay. So yeah, I tell the it used to be that used to be one of the um the opening lighthearted parts of every rush to excellence tour appearance that I did. Okay, when we come back, we have uh we have to get back to your phone calls and we have Carl Rovelli destroyed Biden last night on on his narrative on COVID. We got lots of stuff coming up. Hang on. Okay, before we go back to the phones, a couple of more Trump sound bites from the Council on National Policy. Uh, this this is going to send them into orbit. It probably already has the next bite. Here we go. I really don't think that you're going to know anything on the evening, anything meaningful or anything real on the evening of November 3rd. I don't think you're going to know anything. You're not going to know what happened. I don't think you'll know two weeks later. I don't think you'll know four weeks later. And I don't know what's going to happen. You know, there's a theory that if you don't have it by the end of the year, crazy Nancy Pelosi would become president. You know that, right? No, no, think of that. Think of that. There's that mad theory, too. You you have heard that theory. Now, I don't know if it's a theory or a fact, but I said, that's not good. Have you all... (laughs) I've had more people asking me about this. And uh, Mr. Snurdly informs me that we've had we've been inundated with calls about this, and I have told him don't put any of them up there because I can't believe it. Doesn't make any sense. The theory is that if after an election, November third, this let's use this one. If, if the election of November third, if by January twentieth there has not been a winner declared that the Speaker of the House, 
who is third in line, becomes president. In which case it would be Pelosi if the Democrats win the House. You see, the new Congress will get sworn in sometime early in January. Now, I have never seen this provision. I can't sit here and tell you it's not true. I have have just never heard it. It doesn't. It doesn't sound like something the Founding Fathers would actually write as a provision. I could be wrong about it, though. I, I just, even Just the fact that I've never heard of it doesn't mean it can't be possible. Uh, I'm, I've, I've been trying to think, why would it be? I've never heard it before. Well, so what could the thinking behind it be? The thinking behind it could be it's a way of staving off any post-election chicanery and trichinology that somebody that wasn't even running for president will be appointed if uh, the powers that be cannot come to a mutual decision on the winner. But the president's obviously out there pushing it, and that's what he's talking about, that if there's not a declared winner, an acknowledged winner, by December, by January 20th, then the Speaker of the House shall become president. Now, we assume it's Pelosi because that assumption is based on the Democrats holding the House. It could well be a Republican if the Republicans win the House. But this whole comment, I guarantee you this whole comment is going to have them climbing the walls. Because they're going to say that what Trump is setting the stage for here is not leaving. They've got themselves believing that he's not going to leave. They've got themselves convinced that if he loses, he's not going to leave. Do you know that there are drive-by New York Times columnists, maybe Washington Post, who have literally written pieces already urging the chairman of the chief joints of staff to remove the president if he loses and refuses to leave. And do you know what? I do know for a fact that the chairman of the chief joints of staff does not have that constitutional authority. The chairman of the chief joints of staff also does not have the authority to order troops to do anything. Did you know that? The chairman of the chief joints cannot order troops to invade the White House or to invade Congress or to invade Iraq. The chairman of the joint chiefs is an advisor to the president. Now, he's a powerful military guy, but he's, he does not have the authority to order troop movement. So he cannot order a coup. Now, now that doesn't mean that some renegade wouldn't try. We're talking about... Uh, constitutional authority. My, my point is that the Democrats are so paranoid. They are so convinced that if Trump loses, he will not leave. That they are now suggesting in newspaper columns and elsewhere that the chairman of the chief joints of staff literally get ready to make a move to, to, to physically remove Donald Trump from the residence of the White House, from the Oval Orifice. I think, I think Trump is 
toying with these people and playing with them like only he can. I think he's doing it for the fun of it. This whole line here. Well, you know, uh, I don't really think you're going to know anything on the evening of November 3rd. I don't think you're going to know any. I don't, you, you're not going to know what happened. I, I don't think you'll know two weeks later. I don't think you'll know four weeks later. I don't I don't know what's going to happen. You know, there's there's a theory that if you if you don't have it by the end of the year, crazy Nancy would become president. You know that, right? Audience starts gasping and booing. He said, no, no, think of that. Think of that. There's a mad theory. You've heard that theory. Now, I don't know if it's theory. I don't know if it's fact, but I said that's not good. But just to allude to the fact that we're not going to know. But, folks, about that, I have to remind you, the Democrat Party, and I, I want every one of you to know this like you know your ABCs. The Democrat Party has corrupted. They have done more to disrupt the honor and integrity of the American presidential electoral system than any other entity in the world. They have done a far better job of causing people to question it than Vladimir Putin could have ever hoped. Or the Chikon leader Xi Jinping. Or the little pot-bellied dictator in North Korea, Kim Jong-un. There's nothing those three together could have done to create more damage to the perception of fairness in our electoral system than what the Democrat Party and the American media have done the past four years. And I mean that as seriously as I have ever meant anything. They've already been talking about how the Russians have begun to tamper with the 2020 election. They never gave up on the lie that the Russians tampered in 2016. It is not possible to tamper with an American presidential election. You wouldn't know where to start. You wouldn't know where to go. It's too complex. Even Obama has admitted that it would not be possible to do in the way, like by by tampering with machines, the way the Russians were supposed to have done it. But that doesn't matter. How many people in this country now do you think are prepared to question whatever the outcome is. And I'll guarantee it's a large number. Here's the final bite, uh, where he tells the media he's not trying to steal anything. He's trying to keep an election from being stolen. This will be the greatest catastrophe, one of the greatest catastrophes in the history of our country. That's how serious it is. And they also think I'm trying to steal an election, just the opposite. I want the fair results of an election. And that I absolutely, totally believe... Let me tell you something as far as Donald Trump is concerned, folks. What really bothers him more than anything about the Trump-Russia collusion stuff, and it's, it's tough to pick one thing because this effort they've engaged in has been designed to destroy him and to destroy his businesses, to destroy his life and the lives of his family, and, and, and to destroy virtually everything he's worked for. It has been massively inclusive, the effort they have engaged in. But the thing about it that I think offends him the most 
is their insinuation that he didn't win fair and square, that he cheated, that he stole it. This is the single greatest achievement of his life. It would be of anybody's. But in his case, he's a total outsider. He ran one of the most unconventional campaigns ever. He beat a shoe-in candidate who is one of the supposedly most unbeatable members of the Washington establishment. And he did it handily. He did it with ease. He defeated the entire Washington establishment. While they were mocking him and while they were laughing at him for the entire number of years of the campaign, while telling everybody he didn't have a chance, while literally making fun of him as often as they could, and he literally won that election right out from under their nose while they were looking at him every day. He didn't sneak up on anybody. He didn't cheat. He won that thing fair and square, and the fact they've tried to take it away from him, the fact that they have tried to sully his victory by claiming it's illegitimate is what bugs him more than anything. And that's why he wanted to get to the bottom of this. That's why he was in, you know, when Comey told him that he was not a target, that's why he believed it. If you had done what he did, it would be the proudest thing you've done in your life. And then imagine four years of a bunch of people trying to take it away from you by spying on you, by making things up about you. He doesn't, he doesn't want to win the presidency by cheating it or stealing it or taking it. He wants it to be 100% legitimate. It's worth nothing to him. If he has to fake it, it's worth nothing to him. If he has to steal it, to these people, it doesn't matter how they get it. They're making that abundantly clear. Quick time out. Back with much more in a moment. And greetings and welcome back. Great to have you, Rush Limbaugh, meeting and surpassing all audience expectations on a daily basis. Hi, Abby. What's happening, Abby? Here is Eric in Davie, Florida. Great to have you on the EIB Network. Hello. Rush, it is a great honor. The only better honor would be to meet Donald Trump myself, personally. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you very uh, much. I'll get to my point. Uh, I've heard it said that part of the reasoning on why we're having all these protests, burning, looting, and destruction in these major U.S. cities is payback for all the voters who voted for Trump in 2016. My question to you, the genius, is if Donald Trump wins re-election, will it ever end? And if Joe Biden wins, will it ever end? What do you mean payback? They hate Trump so much. This is payback. Let's go out and destroy American cities and and make these people pay for voting for Trump. Well, except the problem here with that theory is that it's highly likely they are not destroying the property of Trump voters because the property they're destroying happens to pretty much exclusively be in blue Democrat states. Right. In blue Democrat cities like Seattle and Portland, 
Plus, um, on a timeline, this stuff all really ratcheted up after the death of George Floyd. Now, the, 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 all those crazed women wearing vagina hats on, you know, within a week after Trump being inaugurated and, and then doing the travel ban, uh, I, I don't I don't doubt that much of the civil unrest that's been practiced out there is literal temper tantrums on the part of people who lost the election. And this is simply the childish way that they they're going about uh, showing it. Uh, but I don't I don't think that these people are if 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 the theory is that they are getting back at Trump voters for voting for Trump, they're 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 missing the boat. They're not, I mean, they're tearing up places in California. They're tearing up places in Oregon, state of Washington, where Democrat businesses are and where Democrat people. The question is, if Biden wins, does this stuff continue? If Trump wins, does this stuff continue? And in what scenario does this stuff stop? Well, it's going to stop at some point. It's either going to burn out or... A breaking point is going to be reached, and local and federal law enforcement is going to lower the boom. I think the reason it's continuing is because the Democrat Party has determined that it is a positive thing to help them win re-election for all of this chaos to occur. I think they want people to believe that it is all related to Trump, that this rioting, the looting, that the chaos is understandable. It's understandable these people would hate Trump. He's a racist bigot. It's understandable. We don't think we should try to stop them or quiet them down. This is peaceful protests. These are mothers upset that Trump wants to take their health care away. So they, it's an active political calculation that this wanton destruction of Democrat cities will delay the opening of Democrat cities and states, which will therefore delay the speed of the recovery of the American economy, which at the end of that progression ends up hurting Trump. All of this, like I, I told a caller yesterday, everything happening, no matter how illogical you might think, everything happening is part of the Democrat Party effort to stop Donald Trump, to defeat Donald Trump. Everything. Black Lives Matter being allowed to run amok, Antifa being allowed to run amok, New York, California, Washington, Oregon governors and mayors not putting a stop to this, all designed to create chaos that's, that they can blame on Donald Trump. So theoretically, if Trump loses, then they would say, oh, yeah, it's going to end at some point. A lot of people think it's going to end. The, the virus is going to end on uh, November 4th. I mean, the big news about the virus, the virus as an ongoing daily concern will also end after the election. Uh, either way. Uh, but I, I, I don't think it's going to stop until these people are dealt with. I'm talking about Black Lives Matter, Antifa, 
They're going to keep going for as long as they're being paid to do it, as long as it is of uh, value to them. Quick time out, my friends. Time keeps racing by here. We'll be back. All right, my friends, that's it for another busy, exciting broadcast hour hosted by me, Rush Limbaugh. we got to take a brief break here at the top. Local affiliates uh, where you live telling you what's going on, and then we'll be back. Sit tight. Doing what I was born to do. Doing it well, and that's why I'm having more fun than a human being should be allowed to have. I am America's real anchorman, America's truth detector, and the doctor of democracy. Right here, behind the golden EIB microphone. Live from the Southern Command in sunny South Florida, it's Open Line Friday. Open Line Friday, you get to choose whatever it is you want to talk about. You can ask questions, you can make comments, it doesn't matter what it's about. Have at it. It's a once a week opportunity, because Monday through Thursday we kind of screen calls more tightly than we do on Friday. 800-282-2882. It's a good question. Is this stuff going to continue after the election? You know, my theory that no matter what it is, uh, everybody, every human being has an emotional reservoir, and at some point it runs dry. You simply run out of energy. You run out of the emotion that makes you care. Nobody has an emotional reservoir that gets constantly refilled. Unless there's something abnormal about them, unless there's something something sick about them, and that they become actually their lives become lived in in a in a per- perpetual state of anger or angst, and a lot of people on the left believe me, this has happened to, and it has been done to them on purpose, I believe. So it's. It's actually it's a toss up <clears throat> whether some of this stuff is going to go on or not. Whether some of it's going to continue. If you're thinking on it, really would have to be predicated on: Do you think it's legitimate in the first place, or is it just all political in nature? In other words, is there really anger at what happened to George Floyd, or was it just an opportunity? And when the George Floyd murder happened, did some kind of trigger occur, some kind of marching orders sent out? We know the left can and does operate that way. No, 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 no. I'm not trying to say that George Floyd's situation was not legitimately frustrating and angering. And I'm just I'm just saying that a lot of people... There are a lot of people didn't march in the 60s civil rights protests would love to tell you they did and do lie about it and tell you they did because it gives them, you know, a sense of uh, identity and purpose. And I think these incidents that are happening now, like like the woman that said um, to explain looting, well, we're looting Because this is reparations. We're owed reparations. So everything we're taking, it's legitimately ours. These businesses have insurance. They're going to get repaid. So it's nothing off their backs. So that's how they're looking at it. 
if no effort is made to stop them, why should they stop? I mean, in the simplest terms of human behavior, if your mayor, if your governor is going to essentially show him or herself to side with you, why should you stop? Because what says it's wrong? I don't think these people have an inner compass that says what they're doing is wrong. I think that's what's missing in a lot of them. I, I think, you know, this is a, the Wall Street Journal editorial many, many years ago, no guardrails, meaning the morality is gone. The protective guardrails that keep you from going off the side of the cliff, they're gone. I think, I think morality has been absent, the American culture at large, for 30 years. I think the, when, it, when it became an adjunct of the left that morality is nobody's decision for anybody else, that there is no universal right and wrong, that morality is somebody's individual choice. I think it was over for morality. Uh, when they openly make moves to eliminate God from as much of life as they can, it's an attack on morality. It's an attack on what they consider to be judgmentalism. It's an attack on what they think is having a good time. It could be any number of things. I don't think the people engaging this have a a little voice inside whispering to them that they're engaging in bad things. I think some people actually are missing the little voice. And you can call it your conscience. You can call it uh, your connection to morality or God. But I think some people genuinely do not have it. Some of it's born of genuine rage, but how much of the rage is actually genuine versus uh, manufactured and, uh, and, and made up? But I think it all boils down. The simplest way to understand all of this, and it, this is not to say it's easy to understand, but it's all happening with the permission of people who hate Donald Trump. It's all happening with the permission and the encouragement of people who believe that it will help hasten the defeat of Donald Trump. That, and, and maybe there are other factors. The left doesn't have the guts to say no to these people. They're afraid of them themselves. They envy them. They wish they could be like them, but there's any number of uh, potential uh, explanations for this. But if you want it to stop, stop empowering liberals. Stop electing liberals. Stop giving them positions of power. This stuff will eventually stop at some point. Anyway, look at this headline. Chinese communist newspaper endorses Joe Biden. Every year, every election year, we find that communists around the world endorse the Democrat candidate. We find that Communists around the world start sounding just like the Democrat candidates running for president here. China's state-controlled Global Times did not print a traditional endorsement, but the paper makes it clear that China wants Biden to beat Trump, which isn't a surprise given Biden and his son's cozy relationship with China. Not to mention that China and Cuba 
and other communist regimes have endorsed, uh, did endorse the uh, Obama-Biden ticket during both elections. Look at this headline. This is from the Washington Examiner. Emotional breakdowns after Trump ads appear on the Washington Post website. What is this? It says here that uh, Timothy Carney wrote, Democracy died a little this week after the Washington Post allowed pro-Trump campaign ads to appear on its website, according to distraught members of the press. One big, splashy Trump 2020 ad that appeared yesterday morning in the Washington Post website said, The radical leftist takeover of Joe Biden is complete. What a completely horrible error of judgment, tweeted Columbia Journalism School's Emily Bell. Any issue-based advertising takeover of a masthead or a homepage should be, by default, against the rules of a news publication. Meaning, how can the Washington Post allow this? Journalist and Emory Human Health Senior Fellow Marilyn McKenna said, This is a shocking error of judgment on the part of the Washington Post. The Washington Post's own Hamza Shaban, who covers business, sought to shame his employer over the ads. But the most frantic and the funniest reaction Thursday came from City University of New York journalism professor Jeff Jarvis. Now, this guy used to be a big muckety-muck at USA Today. And he demanded, Jeff Jarvis demanded apologies and other forms of satisfaction from the Washington Post for allowing Trump campaign ads to appear on its website. In a lengthy tirade posted to social media, Jarvis said, no, Washington Post, no, 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 how dare you? Were these pieces of silver, meaning the cost, were they worth the price of your soul? The Post not only sold its front page, but also sold a takeover. Who the F decided this? I am so ashamed of you, Washington Post. We have a legitimate emotional breakdown occurring a legitimate emotional breakdown occurring all over mainstream journalism because the Washington Post sold a Trump campaign ad on its website. Now, last night, back to the uh, back to the plugs acceptance speech. And I have to tell you, let me just review. There are a lot of people I have come to find out who want to know if Plugs's speech was delivered live or was it pre-recorded? Now, the assumption I think that everybody had going in was that he was live. Did you think it was live? Did you think it was live, Mr. Snurl? Because we didn't hear anything else. Well, it was live. Uh, the time came for the speech to happen. The lights went down or came up, whichever, and here comes Plugs. And starts the speech. Some people are of the opinion that it had to be taped and that it had to be taped in segments and the segments had to be edited together because Plugs is not capable of 22 minutes even reading a prompter with no screw ups. This is the prevailing theory. I have heard from some professional video people 
who say that they have studied it. They're trying to find out if it was tape or live based on the premise that there isn't any evidence that Joe Biden has the ability to go 22 minutes, even on a prompter, without making a mistake, without some kind of a flub. And there weren't – there was one mistake, and it was a tiny little near, nearly grammatical mistake nearly end of the speech, and it, 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 it's not something that you would even – Worry about if your plugs is team to go back and fix because it's one of those things that went by so fast that you're thinking most people wouldn't notice it. And if any critics did notice it and wrote about which some did, that it's it's not enough to stir up anything anyway. And it isn't. I mean, I, I can't even tell you off the top of my head. I'd have to have it in front of me. Uh, the nature of the of the mistake. I'm just telling you that there are a lot of people who believe that Joe Biden is not even capable of doing what he did last night. And some have said to me, look, Rush, this isn't complicated. If Biden was able to read that speech with all of that emotion and all of that empathy, if he was able to do that for 22 minutes, then why not go outside and do it on a stage in front of all the people in the cars? Which, you have to admit, is a legitimate question. And the answer might come back, well, Rush, it's COVID. Trump, uh, uh, Biden just can't do that. Too risky. Well, no, social distancing would have been more than enough out there. Plus, it's outdoors. Plus, plugs could have put on a mask. Uh, Could have been any number of ways. But because he did it from inside the building, there are some people asking a legitimate question. Was that thing really live or was it a series of edited together segments made to look live on the premise that Biden isn't capable of 22 minutes, however long it was, of flawless reading with proper emotion and all that of what's on a teleprompter without making a single mistake. Be hard for him to do. So I just want to put it out. One of the, one of the things that he did during the speech, he launched into a narrative on COVID that, again, was a narrative, just literally made it up. And it was an attempt at indicting Trump, criticizing Trump, not doing enough, not caring enough. And last night on the Laura Ingram show on Fox, Carl Rove just destroyed Biden on this narrative. It's soundbite number six, and here it comes in three, two, one. Late January, remember, he had said the China travel ban was hysteria and xenophobia. Early February, he sent out his campaign to say this is less lethal than SARS and is, quote, probably not a serious epidemic. Mid-February, he said... Quote, we don't have a COVID-19 epidemic. We have a fear epidemic. By late February, they were saying, quote, it's like the flu and it's going to dissipate with warmer weather and move to the southern hemisphere. And, quote, masks are not going to help. And, quote, early March, 
opposed the European travel ban. He's also the guy who presided over the, in the Obama-Biden administration over depleting the national strategic stockpile of the PPE. His plan was delivered. All six things in it were things that President Trump and his administration had already done. Now, that's big. You wouldn't, I mean, Carl Rove coming to Trump's defense is a big deal. And, but he just decimates Biden there. Every bit of that is absolutely true. And everything Biden was accusing Trump of doing but not caring and making wrong moves and so forth were also just dead wrong. As dead wrong as Biden's claims and what Trump said about the neo-Nazi skinheads and the white supremacists at Charlottesville. Now, better take a break. When we come back, I have a 50-second bite of Biden's speech last night. And uh, Cookie has described it as Biden slurring his way through tortured deer-in-the-headlight speech. Yes, she's she's allowed to editorialize here. She sends me, of course, that's not a problem. I just want to, I'm just telling you, there's a number of people who are still suspicious about it, even though it drew rave reviews from everybody. We'll show you what we mean when we come back. Back we are, talent on lawn from God. Rush Limbaugh, having more fun than I should be allowed to have, I guarantee you. Here we go back to the phones. Terry in Atlanta, you're next. It's great to have you. Uh, Rush, got a golf question for you. I know you love golf, and I do, but slow play drives me nuts. So let's say that the golf gods make you the czar of the PGA Tour. Tell me two or three things that you would do instantly to speed these guys up, like DeChambeau and Dustin Johnson, folks like that. Oh, you're talking about how to speed up the PGA Tour. Yes, uh, sir. Uh, so you're not you're not concerned how long it takes you to play. You're you're concerned how long it takes you to watch a tournament take place on TV. Yeah, since the COVID thing, you know, any, since the golf's been back out there, it's been one of the few things on television. That's and, true. You know, the guys, the guys I play with, the guys you play with, we play pretty fast. I'm going to get down under four hours every time. But these guys are taking 15 practice swings, so forth. Yeah, I hear you. I my group, my my bunch of guys, when we're on, we can do it in three, three and a half. Um, and that's the way it ought to be. I, but, but you know, we don't play like every tournament's the Masters. We're not reading every putt from 15 different angles on the green, and we're not uh, doing everything. We're not pretending that we're any better than we are. These guys are playing. It's their, it's their livelihood. It's their living. It's their money, and they're looking for every advantage, they can get, including psychological. And if the slow players can make the... Um, uh, the faster players screw up by making them impatient, then that's part of the gamesmanship that they're engaged in. I don't know what you could do to speed it up short of penalizing people uh, strokes uh, for, for you know, after they hit the green and however long it takes to put out, put a time limit on it. See, I'm for the clock. I, I like that the first first guy who gets his ball, you got 60 seconds. Next guy, he's got 45 seconds. He's playing in threesomes. Next guy's got 30 yeah, seconds. Yeah, but then you, now you've got a timer and or a series of timers that got to hang, – hang on here just a second. No. All right, Terry in Atlanta, you still there? Yes, sir. What do you think about this? What do you think about letting them ride carts? You think that would speed it up enough? It would help. It would certainly help. I know that but many people would say then they're not athletes because they're not walking. 
But it doesn't seem to hurt the senior tour. Well, I know, but a lot of people think golf is not athletics anyway, that it's a skill of some kind. I, I disagree with them, but not that if, if, if the point is to speed the game up, uh, you start messing around, you start putting people on the clock, that means you're going to have timers. That means you're going to have people going to screw up the timing. You're going to have disputes over the timers. Uh, did they start the clock too soon? And the delay over uh, looking back at the videotape, did the clock start at the right time, is going to create a bigger mess than what you have now. The The objective would be a good one, but the, the, the mechanism by which you put people on the clock, uh, it would be challenging thing. I, I don't know there's much that you can do. Well, I think you're right about a couple of things. But, you know, I think that uh, you look at, say, Brooks uh, Kepka, and he plays very, very fast, and he's playing with a guy like DeChambeau. Don't you think it, like you said earlier, you know, gets in their head. It's got to drive the guy crazy to sit there and watch him go through some of his uh, gyrations of swings and so forth. Who, you mean uh, DeChambeau? Yes. Yeah. I saw there was I forget who did this. It was oh, it was Rory Sabatini was playing with somebody really slow. Um, this is years ago, and Sabatini said, "The hell with it! I'm just going to the next hole. I'm gonna I've, screw this guy," and he ended up finishing three holes ahead of the guy. Well, I'm sure you play ready golf with your guys as we do. Hell and, yes, and we do. You so, hit, you hit well, when ready. You like make what Sabatini did would be the same thing. Yeah. Well, you, you, uh, well, except, yeah. He didn't. He didn't wait for the guy to finish. He was got so frustrated. He didn't wait for him to putt. He didn't wait for the right order to take place. He just, he just hit when he was ready, and he finished three or four holes ahead of the guy. And then the guy that was asked about, well, I don't blame him. I, I, I am a slow player. It's those are really tough things because, as I say, they're earning their living. They've got their. A lot of those exercises are done to de-stress, uh, to take pressure out. Uh, these guys are singular performers. There's no team. There's nobody else to rely on. And every one of them is different in terms of how they handle pressure and how they try to diffuse pressure, particularly after a bad hole, after a bad putt. And uh, I know there have been a lot of people who have experimented with uh, speeding play up with the use of timers, and it's it's been uh, it's been tested, I know, and it it's it's broken down because you need so many of them, and you can't guarantee that they're all legit. And when you have to go back and recheck a timer and make sure he started on time, it just adds to uh, even more delays. But I really like that question. You know why? Because I've never thought of myself as running the PGA, or any other professional golf uh, organization. So you forced me into a, a a thought position that I have never, ever placed myself. And it's, you know, now I'm going to, I'm going to actually think about it even after the program is over. And I may come up with some um, ideas because this never comes up. I mean, I, when we play, we don't, if we're slow, it's because some people in front of us are slowing us down. It's never because somebody in our group is playing slow. So we never have to take steps to speed ourselves up, especially if we establish a rule hit when ready. The hold with honors, hit when ready. And it, uh, the purpose is to enjoy yourself out there. And nobody, I think one of the problems with golf, trying to get new people to play it, 
it takes four hours, and that's just too long uh, for a lot of people. So that's why the PGA is even experimenting with marketing the game. Play 12, play nine holes. You don't have to play 18. Not the PGA Tour, but just you when you're out there playing. Anyway, Terry, I appreciate it. I really do. Thanks much. Okay, now here's soundbite number seven, and I just want to share with you a cookie characterized this on the on the roster, the soundbite roster for me. She said here, Biden slurs his way through tortured deer in headlight speech. Now, we are discussing here, there are a lot of people I've heard from today who think that thing was too perfect. And they're wondering how it was done. And the premise is that Biden is not capable of doing 22 minutes straight like that in one take perfectly. Very few people actually are, but particularly Biden, because of the evidence that we have seen. Even with the words on the prompter, you still have to stay focused. You have to maintain the cadence that whoever's running the prompter, you have to keep up with it. You meaning Biden, the performer. So whoever's running the prompter has to make sure that they are running it at a proper cadence for plugs to keep up. They can't go too fast or it's going to be obvious that he's losing his place. They can't go too slow because he's going to obviously be impatient for what's coming next and it's not going to show on the prompters. The the point is it had to be perfect and perfect doesn't happen in the first take. And perfect doesn't happen in live. So we're all wondering, was it live? We don't know. Or was it recorded? If it was recorded, was it one take? If it was one take, how? Because anybody that produces movies or television shows will tell you that to get quote-unquote perfect can take 30 takes, it can take 50 or more of just a scene. Then you have to edit the scenes together. So people are asking, was this live to tape? Meaning all in one take and you don't stop, you just let it go. Or... Was it live to tape and then a mistake was made and you call a halt and you go back and do you start from the beginning or do you start from where the mistake was and keep shooting until you get it right? Then you edit the pieces together. I've even had somebody say, look, Rush, look at his hands. His hands are in a perfect place in every shot. That's not possible. We have a lot of people really analyzing this out there. A lot, at least that I'm hearing from. A lot of people trying to figure out how this was made to happen because of what they believe Biden's limitations are. I'll tell you what this tells me. This tells me that a lot of people think this was awesome last night. A lot of people are worried about it because it was so damn good. I mean, just based on the on the feedback I'm getting. Like some of these people want to know, did they do that in one take or is it a series of takes? That was perfection. 
How did they do that? It, I mean, it means they're worried about it. And they're worried about it from the standpoint of expectations. The expectations were set so low, nobody thought Biden was going to be able to do what he did last night, and yet he did it. So now those people who are concerned and worried he was able to do it, now they want to know how. Because they don't think Biden can do what he did last night. Yet there it is. He did it. It was either live or it was on tape. We don't know. So here's a segment of just 50 seconds. And we don't have the video to go with it. This is just the audio. In this little segment, he's staring at the prompter, looking scared. This is Cookie's interpretation, not mine. Looking scared, slurred his way through. I don't know. We'll have to see if there's slurs in here. Every line, she says, seemed labored. He said, there's never been anything we've been able to accomplish when we've done it together. And they called it a great. That's the line that he screwed up. It should have said, there's never been anything we haven't been able to accomplish when we've done it together. But he said, there has never been anything we have been able to accomplish when we've done it together. It's a tiny error that most people aren't going to catch until they see the transcript goes by too fast in real time to catch it. Here's the bite. See what you think. All the young people have known only America being rising in equity and the undeniable realities and just the accelerating threats of climate change. No rhetoric is needed. Taking insurance away from more than 20 million people, including more than 15 million people on Medicaid. Each of us have a purpose of our, in our lives. With an education system and for the elderly to stay in their homes, Social Security is a sacred obligation. And whether it's the existential, th- existential threat to restore the promise of America, no one's been tougher on the big banks and on, gun, on the gun lobby. Spewing the same, same anti-Semitic bile. It was, some, it was someone. And there, there's never been anything we've been able to accomplish when we've done it together. Now... Did you hear all the flub-ups in that? Do you remember hearing them when you watched it last night? No, you don't, do you? I'm not trying to say anything cosmic here. Don't misunderstand. I do. See, I'm at a disadvantage every day because my hearing is horrible, folks. I rely 90% on closed captioning. I cannot trust that what I'm hearing is accurate. So I'm watching it last night, but I've got the captioning on. I heard every one of those screw-ups, but I I didn't trust that they were screw-ups. I don't know whether to blame my hearing or not. For example, for all the young people who've known only America being of uh, uh, in rising inequity and the undeniable uralities, I didn't hear, but that's what it says. What is a urality? U-R-A-L-I-T-I-E-S. For all the young people who've known only America being of uh, uh, in, in rising inequity and the undeniable uralities and asks uh, uh, just accelerating threats of climate change. It was disjointed. It, it was senseless. It didn't be. Now, 
I can't trust my hearing enough to know when this stuff's going by that I'm actually hearing what it is. So I trust the, the prompter or the, the closed captioning. Now that I hear that there are countless errors, spoken errors. Now, this is a montage. So this is not, you know, a, a, a set bite from beginning to end. We took various elements of the speech and, you know, spliced, uh, edited them together here. This is not one solid segment. With uh, with an education-ism uh, and for the uh, elderly to stay in their homes, Social Security sacred obligation, whether it's the existential, uh, the, uh, existential uh, I didn't hear any of that. So then I didn't hear any of that. Then I tuned to the post-speech analysis and I'm hearing how great it is. That doesn't sound so magically great to me. You know, ladies and gentlemen, few incidents in a neighborhood spark conversation like a home robbery. Man, when that happens in a neighborhood, it gets everybody's attention. Somebody down the street's a victim of a break-in. That news travels fast. If a burglar has been on the block for one home, what's to say they don't come back for another? That's what everybody asks. And it is the kind of thought that lingers in anyone's mind and makes you also think whether your home is adequately protected. Now, that's a thought and a worry easily solved. Simply safe home security solves that worry and problem. This is a security system that you can order today. You can install it within a week. It comes to your home pre-configured and pre-tested. You order the components you need on their website, sensors and detectors and HD cameras, all of them easily installed by you. You just put them where you want them to be. Doors and windows, you got glass, uh, glass break sensors, motion detectors, cameras, put them where you want them. They connect via Wi-Fi. I have to worry about wires at all here. You really can do this. In fact, I would suggest you do it because afterwards you're going to have a very intimate awareness of your system. Nothing better than that. You know your home best. You know where these sensors ought to be. Then you turn the system on with the press of a button. No wires. Uses Wi-Fi and cellular and you're home free. And the 24-7 professional monitoring that connects your system with a local police is only fourteen ninety nine a month. There's no contract anywhere to sign. You got an HD camera in there. You can also make sure the cops respond quick because an HD camera will prove it's not a false alarm. Go to simplysafeusa.com now. No promo code needed because that address is just for you in this audience. Simplysafeusa.com. Jim in uh, in Melbourne, Florida. Glad you waited, sir. Hi. Hi, Rush. It's an honor to talk to you. Um, I'll be quick. I'm 58 years old. I'm retired from the NYPD, and I've been listening to you since you were on rated since you were on TV late night. Thank and you, I sir. You for my political thoughts. Um, very simply, uh, if I were Donald Trump's campaign advisor, I would buy media time, TV time in every one of the swing states, and I would play Kamala Harris's uh, words during the. Uh, Democratic primary, accusing him of being a segregationist, and the reason why she had to ride the bus, and I would play the excerpts of her uh, saying that she believed all of the accusers of his sexual misconduct, and I would close it with, I'm Donald Trump, and I approve Kamala's message. Oh, so you would have, you would have Trump's campaign commercials be Kamala Harris from the campaign, 
from the debates saying that she knows that Biden's a racist made her bus to school and that she believes all the women who said it plugs abuse them. I'll bet we do see a commercial of that. I don't know how frequently, but I'll bet I'll bet we do. It's a good idea, Jim, and I'm glad you called. I'm glad you're out there, too. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us, uh, not just today, but all week, ladies and gentlemen. Next week, going to be big. It's going to be massively different, massively more uplifting. You wait and see. Not us. I'm talking about the Republican Trump convention, and we'll be here for all of it. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 